You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now a word from our sponsor, Sixth Sense. Sixth Sense provides award-winning cloud-based automated endpoint and vulnerability management solutions to streamline IT and security operations. With its advanced platform, businesses gain complete visibility and control over their infrastructure, reducing IT and security risks and optimizing operational efficiency. With Sixth Sense, you'll get real-time alerts, risk-based vulnerability prioritization and remediations, and an intuitive automation and orchestration engine so you can focus on your core business goals. Confident in the knowledge that your enterprise is secure, compliant, and running smoothly. To learn why enterprises choose Sixth Sense, visit SixthSense.com. Welcome to SpyCast, the official podcast of the International Spy Museum. I'm your host, Dr. Andrew Hammond, the museum's historian and curator. Coming up next on SpyCast. So it's a very unique relationship because if you see both the countries, uh, in a sense, emerged as modern nation states at around the same time. India attained independence in 1947. The Chinese Communist Party emerged victorious from a protracted uh, civil war. And initial periods of both the countries uh, as modern nation states were, in a sense, very cordial relationship, very friendly relationship which was there. In fact, we had, a, uh, we had a very popular slogan at that time, which is known as Hindi Chini Bhai Bhai, which means India, China, brothers. Indians and Chinese are brothers together. So, but by the late 1950s, many of the uh, issues, you know, st- started to unravel. Samir Patil is a senior fellow at the Observer Research Foundation, India's premier think tank and a top 20 think tank outside of the United States. He is an expert on the intersection between cybersecurity, counterterrorism, and national security. Previously, he served as the Assistant Director of the National Security Council Secretariat at the Prime Minister's Office in New Delhi. He is a PhD in International Relations from Jawaharlal Nehru University in New Delhi and is the author of the 2022 book Securing India in the Cyber Era. His work has been cited in the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Financial Times, the Wall Street Journal and many other agencies. In the rest of this episode, Samir and I discuss cybersecurity in the world's largest democracy, cybersecurity among the world's second largest internet user base, cybersecurity in the world's largest country as of this year, the breakdown of India's intelligence agencies and India's relationships with China and Pakistan. If you enjoy the show, please tell your friends and loved ones. The original podcast on intelligence since 2006, we are SpyCast. Now sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. Well, I'm so pleased to speak to you, Samir. We've been trying to do this for some time, and I'm glad now it's finally happened. One of the things that I wanted to start off asking you was, could you just tell us a little bit more about the Observer, where you currently work? Uh, Thank you so much, Andrew, for inviting me to the podcast. So uh, the Observer Research Foundation is India's largest public policy think tank. It's a private uh, think tank. Uh, We are in the top 20 think tanks in the world outside the United States and Europe. So, And we are like number four in the China, India, South Korea and Japan think tank category. Our work spans both domestic as well as the foreign policy. So we do right from defense industrialization, cybersecurity to technology to also look at, for instance, India's energy security and also look at, for instance, issues such as the economic development, growth and its its impact on the Indian society. We also have a sister branch in the United States. It's called as Observer Research Foundation America or ORF America, which is an independent think tank. But it looks largely at the U.S. domestic politics, but also looks at India-U.S. relations. And is that based in Washington, D.C.? It is based in Washington, D.C., yes. Okay. 
I think we'll reach out to them and make some friends. <laughs> so it sounds a little bit it sounds a little bit like the ORF is almost like the Brookings Institution of India. Yes, yes, it is. Okay. So you're at the Observer Research Foundation, but your focus is on international politics, mainly regional politics, India, China, Australia and so forth. And then zooming closer in still, you look specifically at cybersecurity, intelligence and technology. So there's a lot to unpack there, but I was wondering if we could start off just telling us what you research at the moment. What are the types of things that you're up to at this particular time or what you've been up to recently? So uh, I, you're right, I primarily work on the national security issues with a focus on cybersecurity as well as the interface of technology and uh, national security. So some of my current research projects are, one I'm looking at essentially the cyber capabilities of the Indian military because that is something which has been gaining salience in the last few years. And uh, as you would know that India recently activated its uh, joint uh, cyber uh, agency known as the Defense Cyber Agency, which essentially looks at all the cyber capabilities of the Indian military, as well as works on cyber defense dimension of the Indian military. So there is a lot of emphasis on upgrading the cyber capabilities. So I'm looking at that particular thing. Second project that I'm looking at is essentially technology and its impact on the Indian society. Just uh, recently, I finished a project looking at the cybersecurity awareness amongst the people. And one thing that I specifically looked at was the kind of cyber hygiene and, and how it can be developed among the younger population. Uh, because India has the world's second largest internet user base, uh, about 800 million plus, which is the second largest after China. But uh, this is the first generation internet uh, user base. So many of them don't have the cybersecurity awareness of what kind of things to do and what not to do uh, in the cyberspace. Plus, also, there is a lot of the uh, unsafe practices that they also engage in. We have seen the instances of doxing, trolling, cyberbullying, and those kind of things. So one of my projects essentially looked at whether we can develop a responsible cybersecurity behavior among the younger generation and how we can do it. So one way that we proposed was that whether the universities and colleges can introduce a course on cybersecurity and cyber hygiene, which will make these youngsters aware, you know, that their freedom on the cyberspace also comes with responsibilities, that they have to be aware of the, of the threat landscape. At the same time, also be aware, you know, that they also have certain responsibilities uh, in terms of the, their fellow cyber uh, internet, uh, internet users. So that was my the project which I looked at in terms of the cybersecurity awareness. And just recently, for our listeners that don't know, I think was it December last year, there was a huge cybersecurity uh, attack and lots of Indians' healthcare information was stolen. Is that correct? Yes, that's correct. So one of India's premier medical facilities, All India Institute of Medical Sciences, uh, or AIMS as we call it, was a victim of a ransomware attack. Uh, we call it a ransomware attack, but it was not exactly a ransomware attack because uh, even though the data which was locked by the saboteurs, there was no ransom demand made as such. And it's possible that they were just looking to uh, harvest the medical data of not just the ordinary Indian people, but this is the, is the nation's premier medical facility, which means it is used by the politicians as well as the senior government officials. The hack could have been to actually harvest that particular data, which would have been actually probably useful for any uh, adversarial uh, intelligence agency. Now, investigations did point out that there are probably some China-based hackers were responsible for this particular hack, and that probably would explain why there was no ransom demand, and they were just interested in getting uh, hands on this particular data. Give our listeners an idea of the type of things that could be done with this uh, information that was stolen. So you mentioned that a lot of India's leaders and uh, the elites uh, go there, and their information could be used? How could it be used? What purposes could the information be put towards? So typically speaking, what we have seen in the case of the Chinese espionage activity is that they, they look at this kind of information as a puzzle. And they are looking for different kinds of the pieces of the puzzle to gather together. So for instance, typically what we have seen in the case of the US espionage cases is that the Chinese hackers are looking at, for instance, the social media profiles of the important personalities, then trying to get their bank details or the financial details, then trying to get their travel details, and therefore pierce together a complete 
picture. So I would say, you know, that this is the, in the case of this particular hack also, a similar kind of attempt probably would be underway where the Chinese are just looking at putting together different pieces of puzzle and therefore build a larger, uh, a, a larger picture, which would give them an idea and which would give them a comprehensive understanding of many of the things uh, than uh, many, many of the things than rather than just getting that individual piece of information, which may or may not be uh, useful. Uh, second thing could be just the financial. And here, actually, you know, we have seen, for instance, in the case of North Koreans, right, that uh, much of this data actually ends up on the dark net marketplaces for sale. So whosoever wants to purchase that kind of data can purchase that uh, data by paying in the cryptocurrencies or the virtual currencies. So that could be one way also that data this data could be useful for anyone who wants to then probably harvest that data and then use that kind of data for blackmailing and those kind of things. Or even develop a picture, for instance, to say in that, okay, what are the kind of the health vulnerabilities of the senior Indian leadership? And therefore, include that piece of assessment in the larger assessment looking at India and India political things, those kind of things. It's really fascinating and that, that makes perfect sense to me. When they build up a complete picture, what is the purpose of doing that? Is this to try to understand India's leaders and try to anticipate their thinking on certain topics? Or is this to potentially, if somebody's got a weak heart, then you try to attack them or something? I mean, I'm not saying it's either of those things. But could you just give us an idea of why you would build a complete picture of India's political elite or financial elite? So just again to get a comprehensive understanding in terms of who could be, who is a healthy leader, and you know who and I know who is not a healthy leader, and therefore develop in terms of who could be the successor of the current leadership and those kind of things. Just to get a sense of that, if there are certain people who are projected as successors, you would also try to get an understanding as to how healthy these people are. Like for instance, what we have seen recently in the case of the United States, right? That. When the presidential candidates announce their candidacy, they have to also undergo a medical test. And therefore, that reveals a lot in terms of their own health and also what are the kind of illnesses or critical illnesses that they might have. So similar kind of thing also here, you know, that when you get that kind of data, you can actually say, you know, that, okay, so-and-so leader underwent a surgery for such and such critical illness, which means that person has that kind of illness. Okay. We got also information that probably, okay, this data has undergone critical illnesses or has got gone a surgery for the same kind of illnesses three times in the last one year, which means the problem is recurrent, which means the person is not healthy. Okay, so we can actually rule him or her out of any potential uh, succession because this person is just not healthy and will not be able to survive the leadership contest and those kind of things. So much, much of these things are in the realm of speculation uh, when you don't have that kind of information. But when you have access to this kind of information, you can actually develop, if not a comprehensive picture, at least a certain idea to say that if so-and-so is projected as a successor and we get this information that, okay, but he's, he or she is not really healthy, then at a certain age, point that they are, how longer they can survive and you know how longer they can be in active politics and therefore can we look at, then can we for instance look at their policies and then get a sense as okay, this could be the future direction of uh, of the ruling party's policies of or his own personal policy preferences or even the government's uh, policies. So that kind of thing. And as far as you've been able to tell, was this Chinese intelligence agencies or was this hackers affiliated with Chinese intelligence agencies such as APT-10, APT-41? Who was conducting these attacks? Uh, so far, we have not got uh, any indication of what who exactly was behind it, but the Indian uh, law enforcement agencies have only said that it is possible that the Chinese hackers may have been uh, behind it. But that has always been the problem in the case of India because India does not conduct its own technical analysis. And even if it conducts a technical analysis, it does not bring it out in the public domain. Then it is actually left to the private cybersecurity and uh, IT uh, information technology agencies to actually bring forth that kind of evidence. So, for instance, we have seen previously how uh, Mandiant or the recorded future or uh, Firefly had actually been bringing out these various reports which uh, APT-30, APT-38, where they are mapping certain kind of threat landscape for India and telling that there are groups such as Red Panda or Red Eco, which have been affiliated with the Chinese Ministry of State Security and therefore can establish that link, you know, that whenever the hackers are trying to 
breaching, whenever they're trying to breach the Indian computer network, there is a certain linkage between those hackers and the, and the Chinese uh, establishment. In this particular case, we have not seen, but as I said, that there has been previous instances where there has been an established link between the Chinese hackers and the and the Chinese establishment, which would indicate that this also would be like an a likely state directed activity against the Indian computer networks. Before we get back to intelligence agencies and hacking and so forth, it might be worth just taking a minute to put this within the context of the Chinese Indian relationship, because this is really really fascinating, and it's one that. A lot of our listeners may not know much about, but we're talking about the two biggest countries in the world. We're talking about one country that's a democracy, one country that's a communist society. We're talking about a very contested border region. We're talking about two nuclear armed countries. So it's a really, really fascinating thing that's going on there. So I know that this is very complex, Samir, but maybe you could just Give our listeners a paragraph or two to just help them understand the nature of this relationship. So it's a very unique relationship because if you see both the countries, uh, in a sense, emerged as modern nation states at around the same time. India attained independence in 1947 when it uh, when the British imperialists uh, left the country and China became uh, the People's Republic of China. Uh, when the Chinese Communist Party emerged victorious from a protracted uh, civil war, so that was established in 1949. And initial periods of both the countries uh, as modern nation states were, in a sense, very cordial relationship, very friendly relationship, which was there between the leaderships of the two countries. In fact, we had a, uh, we had a very popular slogan at that time, which is known as Hindi Chini Bhai Bhai, which means India China brothers. Indians and Chinese are brothers together. So, so there was, you know, that kind of optimism which really enveloped this bilateral relationship uh, during the early fifties. Uh, but by the late nineteen fifties, many of the uh, issues, you know, started started to unravel. One issue which came out prominently was the dispute or the disagreement over the border. Because the Chinese were of the opinion that whatever border lines which were settled uh, for the Chinese empire as such by the foreign uh, colonial powers, they were the colonial leftovers. The modern Chinese state would not be really abiding by that. And so therefore, they had their own perception of what was the Chinese uh, territory. And similarly, Indians had their own perception because Indians were like that we have inherited this nation state uh, from the British occupiers. So the borders that they had settled, you know, were, were the ones which we would be actually try to defend. So so that was the, the fundamental nature of disagreement. But at the same time, there was also a disagreement in terms of what was happening uh, in the larger context of the China-Soviet uh, Union. Because again, even though both were communist powers, there was a kind of a schism which was developing between the People's Republic of China and the Soviet Union, whereas India and Soviet Union were just again developing a very good uh, friendship during that period. And then again, India had you know a very antagonistic position towards vis-a-vis uh, -vis the United States. So all that essentially meant that you know that there were these various issues of disagreement were, which were cropping up, and that really you know uh, resulted in uh, particularly the border dispute resulted in. A, uh, in a short border war in the early 1960s, in 1962, which in a sense, uh, where India was badly defeated, India lost many soldiers. Uh, there was also loss on the Chinese side, but the loss of uh, the territory and the soldiers was higher uh, on the Indian side. And since then, you know, Indians, uh, in a sense, were had to have developed that kind of complex. The defeat of the 1962 war has really been ingrained into the Indian psyche. For much of the period since then, there were frosty relations between the two countries. Uh, 60s, 70s, uh, early 80s, there was not much contact between the two sides. It was only in the late 80s, 1988, when the Indian Prime Minister Rajiv Gandhi made a landmark visit to Beijing that both countries again uh, tried to restore their relationship. They also signed an agreement on the line of actual control, which was now the de facto uh, border between the two countries. And then they said that we will uh, try to resolve this uh, border dispute. By that time, there was also another dynamic which was also emerging, which was basically China's cooperation with Pakistan. Uh, and we have seen multiple intelligence reports from the United States, as well as from other sources pointing out how China was primarily responsible for the for the nuclear weapons development of Pakistan, how it tried to ship the nuclear material as well as the missiles, uh, the M11 missiles and those kind of things 
to the Pakistani side. So that again, in a sense, uh, solidified the Indian uh, sense of uh, angst against against China. And by the early 2000s, you know, that also, in a sense, emerged as one of the as one of the greatest dynamics of the bilateral relationship. When India conducted a nuclear test in 1999. Uh, the Prime Minister openly actually said in letter to the United States President Bill Clinton that China was India's uh, was the reason why India conducted the nuclear test. So there has been this you know, long-standing rivalry between the two countries. And according to some analysts, you know, that the fact that China propped up uh, Pakistan essentially was to contain India in South Asia and prevent its regional rise. So that essentially meant that both the countries have been in a long-standing security competition and the border dispute has just taken the toll on the overall bilateral uh, relationship. For the past two years, Indian and the Chinese armies have been engaged in a protracted border standoff in the Himalayas on the line of actual control. In fact, not two years. In fact, it will, uh, it will complete three years in the month of May 2023. And what distinguished this particular border standoff from the previous several border standoff is the violent clash which occurred between the two militaries in June 2020 when uh, India lost 20 uh, Indian soldiers and we don't know what exactly is the count of the Chinese uh, casualties. But that in a sense fundamentally ruptured the relationship because even though there were, had been previous border standoff, there had not been any physical clash. In fact, both Indian and Chinese leaders used to publicly say, and even the Chinese, in the Indian and strategic, uh, Chinese strategic community used to say that India and China, you know, despite their differences, maintain uh, a very peaceful border. But that understanding essentially ruptured. Uh, in 2020, when uh, the when there was a when there was a violent clash between the two militaries and there was a loss of lives, and since then, you know, uh, India has in a sense really accelerated its efforts to join hands with the other like-minded parties, such as, for instance, the United States, Australia, Japan, South Korea, to really, you know, uh, in a sense, ensure you know, that its security uh, uh, options and its security uh, uh, policies are aligned with these countries rather than stand as a kind of weak power against uh, against China. India's own prime minister, India's own military also has also in a sense tried to uh, wherever whenever possible try to gain a, a tactical advantage over the Chinese military on the line of actual control. So again there have been a couple of border clashes but they have that not been really turned uh, violent so far. But that has been like the real context in which this Entire cyber rivalry is also taking place. As I said, you know that there have been there have been a couple of cyber breaches in the last two and a half years, and that is the first time that you know that we have seen that even as a border standoff is going on, there is also a cyber breaches which are going on between uh, from the Chinese hackers onto the Indian computer networks, which in a sense is is an attempt at coercion by the Chinese uh, side. We care deeply about this content. It's really a labour of love. And you can help us get in the ear of as many people as possible through your five-star reviews. It will literally, and I mean literally, take a minute, or if you really want to drag it out, 120 seconds. Quite simply, intelligence and espionage will play a vital role in the onward journey of our species. Your children, your grandchildren, your great-grandchildren. And the more people know about it, what it is, what it is not, how it functions, and how it affects your life, the better. Here in the US alone, intelligence has played an important role in almost every part of American history. Think of the Revolutionary War and the Culper spy ring, World War I, the Zimmerman telegram, World War II, from ambushing the Japanese Navy at Midway, to strategic deception in the run-up to D-Day, the war on terror, the 9-11 Commission report, the Iraq war and a WMD, and overseas, whether in the ongoing war in Ukraine or, as Samir reminds us, in the behind-the-scenes struggles between the world's largest, second-largest and fifth-largest countries, India, China and Pakistan. We'll be right back after this.
And now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI. That's really, really fascinating to me. And just to put it in some context for our listeners, the border between India and China is longer than the one between the United States and Mexico. So I believe it's over 2,000 uh, miles, which is quite a lot of border. From an Indian perspective, is China, and we know we're going to go into Pakistan soon, but is China the main entity that's conducting these cyber attacks? Or uh, does Russia have an eye on India or other countries in the region? Uh, or is it really China that's the major cyber threat? So in terms of the most penetrative attacks, they have actually come uh, from the Chinese hackers. And it is expected because the nature of the Chinese malicious activities has been such that, for instance, what we have seen in the case of the United States, in the case of the European uh, Union member states, they, uh, and for instance, Australian and Japanese and South Korean and the Vietnamese, we have seen how the Chinese hackers tend to be persistent in their cyber breaches against uh, against that country's computer network. So in that sense, most of the attacks coming on the Indian computer networks have been coming from the Chinese side. And they span a multiple things. For one, one is basically just the disruption of the critical national infrastructure. So in October 2020, there was a blackout in India's financial capital, Bombay, where I am uh, based. Uh, and that breach was essentially caused because of the Chinese uh, malware. There was a pro- there was an extended loss of electricity and, uh, and the power grids had been disrupted for an extended period of time. And that happened because of the Chinese malware. So that is one, disruption of the critical infrastructure. Second is in terms of the espionage. So for instance, what we have seen, uh, as I described about this attack on this medical uh, facility, but previously also we have seen APT-30, for instance, targeting India's computer networks, basically government and military computer networks, trying to gain information uh, on issues such as the Indian naval activity in the South China Sea, uh, India's relations with South Asian neighbors, or for that matter, any information on the India-China border dispute. So we have seen that kind of activity also. And the third angle, which in a sense is very visible in the case of the United States and Europe, which is basically the commercial espionage, cyber-enabled commercial uh, espionage. So we are now seeing some traces of it in the case of India. In 2021, there were some reports which said that the Chinese hackers had targeted two Indian vaccine makers, uh, the Serum Institute of India and the Bharat Biotech. Now, the vaccines of these two companies had played a very critical role in India's uh, domestic vaccination program, but also they were part of India's vaccine diplomacy, right? One particular vaccine, which is called as the Covishield in India, or and worldwide it's called as uh, AstraZeneca, that particular vaccine is being used in 180 countries. Whereas the Chinese vaccine, uh, the, even the flagship vaccine, Sinopharm, is being used in probably only just 90 countries. Plus, there are also questions on the effectiveness of the vaccine. So the targeting of these two vaccine makers can also suggest that there is also potential attempt to target these companies, try to gain information on what kind of product and what kind of chemical mix which is being used in this in the, in the in making these vaccines and try to gain that information for the benefit of the chinese vaccine companies so we have seen that kind of attempt also in terms of the commercial espionage so that is one developing front in this entire cyber threat landscape from china so it's actually on multiple fronts and for multiple reasons that's, yes, that's yes re- it is that's really really fascinating And I think it might be useful here, before we move on to Pakistan and Kashmir and speak a little bit more about your expertise in that area, uh, including your time on the Indian National Security Council Secretariat, could we just briefly talk about India's intelligence agencies for our listeners that don't know? You tell us just a little bit more about them and how they intersect with your work. 
So uh, more than the Joint Cipher Bureau, I know it's actually the National Technical Research Organization, which can be compared as equivalent to the National Security Agency because it does a lot of the technical uh, intelligence uh, collection. Uh, and that entity is the most recent one uh, in terms of the overall setup because the original agency, the original intelligence agency in India has been the Intelligence Bureau. And that has been, in a sense, uh, inherited from the British uh, colonial times. Uh, and the second entity that was created after that was the Research and Analysis Wing. But it was created because earlier the Intelligence Bureau used to do both the domestic as well as the foreign intelligence. But then uh, the uh, the Research and Analysis Wing was set up to essentially look at India's neighborhood first and collect information from these uh, from these countries. And so that is the second intelligence agency. And then uh, there is also military intelligence or the MI. And the Defense Intelligence Agency was is very interesting because it was set up after India's war with Pakistan uh, or a mini war with Pakistan in 1999 when a committee had actually found out much of the gaps in India's intelligence collection as well as a very siloed approach within the three services of the Indian military, the Army, Navy and the Air Force. So the Defense Intelligence Agency was essentially set up to breach these uh, breach these differences amongst the three services and create a integrated intelligence agency and that is how the De- Defense Intelligence Agency uh, came up, but uh, but each of the three services have their own uh, intelligence branch. So, as I said, military intelligence is the army. Then there is the Directorate of Naval Intelligence, which is the Navy's uh, intelligence agency, and then there is the Air Force Intelligence, which is the uh, uh, Indian Air Forces uh, unit. So, those are like you know that that's like a really broad overview of the security and intelligence setup of India. Samir, which ones intersect most with your work? So, as I said, you know, National Security Council Secretariat is is where I got my initial training because uh, that's where I actually, you know, picked up what kind of information that you uh, that you need to essentially arrive at a uniform picture for the policymakers. Because policymakers, when they're taking a critical decision, they need to be sure as to what kind of information which is there on the table. And the National Security Council Secretariat was to ensure that they would give not just a synthesized picture, but also a, a macro overview of the larger national security environment for the policymakers. So I would say that is one agency where my work mostly uh, intersects with. The work that you do at ORF, because you're looking at cyber capabilities, you're also crossing over into the parts of Indian intelligence that concentrate on cyber and signals intelligence. Is not exactly. True? So no. not exactly, because uh, one thing that I do in, in terms of cybersecurity and, you, and that I think clearly comes out in my writings is that I don't have a technology background. Uh, I don't really have like a professional intelligence background. So my work on cybersecurity actually is situated at the intersection of national security, technology, foreign policy, and Indian security policy. And I think that you know, I found over the years I have found you know that that's a very sweet spot to work on because there are many people who do look at only the technical stuff. And there are many people who look at just the security policy issues as such. But uh, my own work actually you know, tries to bridge this gap and to say, okay, I do understand some technical uh, understanding of the issue. I may not have completely as, for instance, a hacker or a cybersecurity professional would have. But at the same time, I also do have a, a, a good understanding of the larger security environment. So if I see a, a one particular kind of a malicious activity or a cyber attack, I can link it to, okay, if this is the current nature of relationship between India and China, then can we link this activity to this particular uh, relationship? So that's where I think uh, my work has been in the last uh, few years. And again, it intersects with the National Security Council Secretariat because uh, in 2015, Indian government created the post of the National Cyber Security Coordinator, who would essentially coordinate between all the stakeholders in the cyberspace. So that would include the technical and the intelligence agencies, as well as security agencies, as well as the law enforcement agencies. So the so the person holding that post would essentially coordinate between these agencies and again would give a comprehensive picture to the political executive as well as the senior office officials about what kind of cyber security land, threat landscape India is confronted uh, with. So in that sense, again, my work has been on that particular line to give broad analysis of the trends in the cyberspace, but at the same time also locate them with in the within the context of the larger Indian security as well as foreign policy. 2008, you go and you leave in 2013. Uh, and you're the assistant director, the National Security Council Secretariat. 
the Prime Minister's office in New Delhi. Um, tell us a little bit more about the types of things that you were doing there. I believe you were a civilian intelligence analyst. Um, just flesh that and going to go on to speak about Mumbai. So maybe just put that to one side for the moment and, and tell us a little bit more about what you've done. You know, mine was a, a really entry-level position uh, when I joined in 2008. My work primarily focused in terms of looking at the insurgency or terrorism in Kashmir Valley, also look at Pakistan and also look at the other regional security issues. So in terms of the typical work that we used to do, we used to, again, get the, the information from all the security agencies and we used to produce these assessments for the political leadership as well as for the senior government officials, including the national security advisor. We used to daily track the developments in our own particular desk. That was for me, Kashmir, Pakistan, and regional security. And then put up the various kinds of briefings and assessments for the consideration of the political executive. That was one part. The second part was also because it was National Security Council Secretariat, it also had the interaction with other foreign counterparts. So we had many interactions with the United States, UK, Israel, uh, as any democracy would have. So that was, again, one part of the job to be to participate in these kind of interactions and, again, prepare reports and talking points and those things. And, of course, we will discuss about Mumbai. So let's start at Mumbai because you joined the National Security Council Secretariat literally as that, as that happened. So maybe, again, just for our listeners that are a bit rusty or don't know much about this, just give them a very a few sentences on the Mumbai attacks in 2008 and then go on to discuss what you were doing while you were at the National Security Council. I actually joined National Security Council Secretariat sometime in September 2008, which was just two or three months before the Mumbai attacks. And one thing that the Mumbai attacks really showed, uh, first of all, what happened in case of Mumbai attacks was that we had a group of 10 armed terrorists entering the city of Mumbai through the coastal route to the maritime route entering the city and then spreading out into the, what should I say, the most prime part of the city, which is south of Bombay, south Bombay, and attacking the various uh, targets. The targets included uh, the two of the uh, of the most prominent hotels of the city, the Hotel Taj and the Hotel Trident. Uh, one of the other targets was the local train uh, station, which basically meant, you know, that every day there were thousands of people at that particular point in time. And the fourth target was a prayer house of the Jews, which is known as the Chabad house, uh, which was also located in South Bombay. So all these targets were actually in South Bombay. And the terrorists, when they entered the city through the coastal route, they spread out and targeted uh, these four targets. Attacks at the local train station were neutralized early on, but then the rest of the action then focused on these two hotels and the Chabad house. The encounter at Chabad house with the militants lasted for many hours and eventually they were also uh, neutralized. Uh, but then the real action then start began uh, in, in the Hotel Taj where the terrorists had actually held many of the occupants of the hotel as the hostages. So there were the scenes of pitch battles between the security forces, the commandos and the terrorists. And eventually after almost one and a half days uh, action, they were neutralized. Uh, in this entire operation, one terrorist was caught alive and his interrogations revealed how the attack had been planned. And that, in a sense, really brought out the extensive planning which was carried out by this Pakistan-based terrorist group, uh, lashkar e -Taiba. As you would have seen from the media reports, there, there was an American uh, citizen, David Headley, uh, who was a Pakistani-American. Uh, he had essentially carried out the reconnaissance of the Reiki of the various targets and had fed that information to the uh, terrorist masterminds in Pakistan who essentially were, were, had taken this information and had been training the militants. Uh, these militants were based out of Pakistan's Punjab province. That's where the headquarters of the lashkar e taiba is located. But it also carried out training in other parts of Pakistan, as well as the Kashmir, which is under Pakistan's occupation, what we call as the Pakistani-occupied uh, uh, Kashmir. So that was in the context of the terrorist attack. And it is not that the Indian intelligence agencies did not have any information about it. They had the information, but they had very disparate basis of information. There was not one agency which could actually collate all that information and put this together to develop a very comprehensive picture of the evolving uh, terrorist threat. 
so what the mumbai attacks essentially revealed was not uh, not so much in terms of the intelligence gathering but more in terms of the intelligence analysis because we had pieces of information which were just not put together by the intelligence agencies so much of the work after the 2008 mumbai attacks in the national security council secretariat and the india's intelligence setup was to develop this ability to to put together this larger uh, picture one way that you know that india developed this capacity was to have an extensive interaction with the foreign uh, with the foreign counterparts so after the 2008 mumbai attacks india have instituted a biannual in strategic intelligence dialogue with the united states dni the directorate of national intelligence where analysts essentially shared their assessment and tried to see you know how their assessments match where they differed and why they differed and therefore evolve a common picture in terms of the evolving uh, terrorist threat but also in terms of uh, upgrading of india's technical capabilities because that was something which was again was posed during the terrorist attack for instance knowing fully well that the indian intelligence agencies do not have the capacity to listen in on the satellite phone conversations and the voip calls or the voice over internet protocol calls uh the terrorists actually use these two methods to remain in touch with them so they use the thuraya satellite phones and they use the voip phones to essentially get in touch with their commanders back in pakistan and it was not possible for the indian intelligence agencies to listen into that conversation it was only when the feed came from the us agencies that india began to listen to their conversation and therefore could pierce to get this picture in terms of what exactly uh, what happening what kind of instructions were being given uh, from pakistan to the attackers in in mumbai so much of the effort since then was also in terms of upgrading of the indian uh, intelligence agencies technical uh, capabilities and third was institutional uh, because again there was no intelligence agency in terms of which could do the analysis the national security council secretariat was tasked to actually do much of that analysis india then uh, did two things one was to ensure that the multi agency center the mac in a sense emerged as a primary platform to share the information and india also tried to put together and digitize much of this information and have a seamless uh, exchange of this information through a project called as nat grid uh, which was basically a national grid uh, which brought together all the intelligence related and uh, counterterrorism related information on one particular platform which every law enforcement agency in india could access so that was what india did in terms of the institutional reforms and the third thing a uh, third part of that institutional reform was also the creation of national investigation agency nia which was again something like for instance on the lines of the fbi that india really did not have a dedicated counter terrorism investigation agency and through the national investigation agency india tried to uh, enact that kind of agency which will look at not just the counter terrorism but also look at the issues of terrorist financing because that in a sense was also one concern uh, emerging concern for india because that was in a sense acted as a oxygen for many of the pakistan based uh, terrorist groups and they are pakistan and bangladesh were once parts of the british raj the raj referred to direct british rule over the subcontinent in the personhood of queen victoria and her successors this began in 1858 when power was transferred from the east india company the year after the indian rebellion of 1857 and it ended when parliament passed the indian independence act of 1947 essentially creating india and pakistan as two separate states Since then, India and Pakistan have had a series of wars, skirmishes, and standoffs. Most notable would be two major wars in 1947 and 1965 over the status of Kashmir, which both of them claimed. Kashmir was also the cause of a limited war in 1999. Also notable was a war in 1971, which overlapped with the Bangladeshi Liberation War and resulted in an Indian-Bangladeshi victory. In a sentence, East Pakistan, modern-day Bangladesh, wanted to break free from West Pakistan, with which it was not geographically contiguous. In other words, they weren't side by side. East Pakistani ethnic and linguistic nationalism trumped pan-Islamic affinity with West Pakistan, which to some extent undermined the very idea of Pakistan as envisaged by its founders. Interestingly, in 1947, Pakistan was the first modern nation state to come into being specifically 
as a home for a religious community, the Islamic Republic of Pakistan. Guess what the second was? Let me give you a clue. It came into being the year after Pakistan. It was also precipitated by British withdrawal and it is not one of the three post-Raj states we have been discussing here. And now a word from our sponsor, SpyCloud, the leader in operationalizing cybercrime analytics. Traditional threat intelligence is a thing of the past. Cyber criminals are stealing vast amounts of credentials, session cookies, and financial data every day, and it's hard to keep up. SpyCloud is the trusted partner businesses turn to to fully understand their darknet exposure risk and neutralize threats before it's too late. SpyCloud alerts your organization as soon as an employee or customer's data appears on the dark net, so you can act faster than bad actors to prevent cyber attacks like ransomware, session hijacking, account takeover, and online fraud. With insights from the industry's largest repository of recaptured data, protect the digital identities and systems most important to your business. Get your free corporate darknet exposure report at spycloud.com slash cyberwire and see what information criminals have in their hands today. That's spycloud.com slash cyberwire. Wow, this is really, really fascinating. One of the things that I wanted to ask, with the, the time that has been between the uh, Mumbai attacks and today, what's the evidence that's left behind? Like, So we know Lashkari Taiba is involved. How close, if at all, were their relationships with the Pakistani state or the Inter-Services Intelligence Agency? Are they operating completely independently or are they somehow affiliated at a very tenuous level or is it very there's very strong links uh, yeah just give us your intelligence assessment of the links between Lashkari Taiba and the Pakistani state so the links between the Pakistani state and the Lashkari Taiba uh, actually predated uh, the Mumbai attacks and we had uh, seen that in multiple cases of the terrorist attacks in India there was the hand of the Lashkar Taiba, but much of that direction in terms of targeting, in terms of training, was coming in from the Pakistan's inter-services services intelligence or the ISI, which is the principal uh, military uh, intelligence uh, agency. We had seen evidence which pointed out, for instance, presence of the Pakistani military officials at the terrorist uh, training camps. Now, these were not completely identifiable terrorist training camps. Many of them actually were located within the civilian areas. But we had seen the presence of the Pakistani military officials sometimes also giving training instructions to the terrorist cadres. So that was one evidence which could actually point out the link between the Pakistani state and the terrorist groups. The second was in terms of the funding. We had again seen how, for instance, the Pakistan agencies, uh, state agencies were actually also giving a lot of the funding to the terrorist organizations. And this could be in multiple formats. This could be in terms of the religious donation uh, or in any kind of charity and those kind of things. Because one thing which is very unique about Pakistan's terrorist ecosystem is that given the fact that the state capacity of the Pakistani civilian agencies uh, and the government agencies is so weak that these terrorist groups also had many front organizations which used to act as charity organizations, right? So in case of any natural disaster, it is not the Pakistani state agencies which would be first on the scene. It is the this front agencies, the front charity agencies of the terrorist organizations which would actually arrive on the scene first, would carry out much of the relief work and then the Pakistani state would step in. So in a sense, you know, these, act, these agencies were actually trying to address that particular civilian uh, governance gap but that also meant that there was much sympathy for the kind of work that these agencies were doing. And there used to be many uh, donations, many charities which were being organized by these groups, which used to receive like good amount of funding, not just from the civilians, but also from the government uh, itself. So we have seen that kind of link also in terms of the funding from the Pakistani state to the terrorist organizations. And third is in terms of allowing these militants to sneak into India. 
Now, for instance, you know, on the line of control, which is the de facto border between India and Pakistan in the northern part of the country, uh, in the Kashmir Valley and some part of the Jammu sector in northern India, what we had seen is that many of these militants used to illegally sneak into India from the Pakistani-occupied uh, Kashmir. They used to infiltrate into India. Now, what we had seen is that there were multiple reports where Pakistani army soldiers who were located on the line of control, they used to give them the instructions in terms of which route to follow to cross into India. They used to actually give the covering fire. They used to engage the Indian army soldiers in the exchange of fires and therefore create a diversion for these militants to cross over into India. We used to see, for instance, if there was, if the Indian army used to intercept some of these or ambush some of these infiltrating militants, then if there are any injured militants, they used to be uh, rescued by the Pakistani army vehicles being taken to any of the nearest military uh, facilities, treated and then eventually uh, taken back to their home base. So we had seen that kind of uh, evidence also. And also we had seen, for instance, how these training camps used to receive the overall protection from the civilian agencies, uh, from the intelligence agencies. Just before, for instance, any major terrorist attack would happen and Pakistan would realize that there would be now intense scrutiny of this particular group, they used to take over the, that particular facility, would ensure you know, that everything was shut down for some time, so, and therefore give a facade to say, okay, we have cracked down on this particular terrorist group's training camp and therefore everything is all and well. But after some time, when everything died down, the scrutiny you know, uh, relaxed, of the international scrutiny relaxed, would be business as usual at these training uh, establishment. So we had seen that kind of evidence also. So so that is how the deep the linkages are between the Pakistani state and uh, terrorist organization, organizations such as lashkar e It's such a fascinating relationship. I think the Pakistani-Indian one, and just very briefly, again, just for our listeners that don't know much about the region or, a little, or are a little rusty, could you just give us a nutshell version of what's going on there, talking about partition, talking about very briefly about Kashmir, why the two countries are clashing. And and one fact that our listeners may not know, which I find really fascinating, is Pakistan is the fifth largest country in the world, but there's more Muslims in India than there is in Pakistan, which gives you a sense of the size of India. So just sum up very briefly, if you don't mind, Samir, the India-Pakistan relationship and why there's issues there. So India and Pakistan actually, you know, one night apart in terms of their independence. Pakistan became independent on 14th August 1947 and India became independent on 15th August 1947. The roots of that essentially were in terms of the British plan to divide and rule, which essentially meant that they wanted to create a separate homeland for the, a separate country for the Muslims and a separate country for the Hindus which essentially meant that many of the Muslims from India decided to migrate to Pakistan, but even greater number of Muslims decided to stay back in India because they did not want to leave the region and the society and the community that they were living for centuries together. Such was the multi-ethnic character of the Indian subcontinent. As soon as they got independent, the first crisis occurred between them, was, which was over Kashmir. And because Kashmir was a Muslim-majority state, so, but the ruler of that particular state was a Hindu ruler. So it was really, in a sense, an ironic situation because the ruler wanted to be with India, but the Muslims in the region probably had divided feelings whether to go with India whether or whether to go with Pakistan. And there was also some sentiment to remain independent, to have their own state or a country. But eventually, the ruler signed the instrument of accession, which meant that he made the Kashmir as part of the Indian Federation or a union. But that did not go down well with Pakistan. And therefore, it, in a sense, through its proxies, attacked Kashmir. And that really sparked the first crisis, the first military conflict between India and Pakistan. It, in, it, in a sense, ended in a stalemate because even as the fighting was going on, Indian Prime Minister Jawaharlal Nehru took the question to the United Nations because he was optimistic that United Nations would actually intervene and would ensure you know, that uh, whatever territory that was occupied by Pakistan would be returned to India. That was not the case because the United Nations itself was also then entangled into this larger superpower geopolitics uh, and that did not happen. So eventually over a period of time, you had two uh, Kashmiris. You had the Indian Kashmir and you had the Pakistani-occupied uh, Kashmir. So that, in a sense, sowed the seeds 
of this angst uh, between the two countries. And that, in a sense, translated over the years. So India, when India began to develop the nuclear weapons, Pakistan felt threatened. So it also began to develop its nuclear weapons. But Indian ambition to acquire the nuclear weapons was coming from China's nuclearization because China uh, carried out a nuclear test just two years after the India-China war. So even as Indians were reeling from that particular loss in the 1962 war, here was a China which was emerging as a nuclear power and that in a sense amplified India's uh, threat perceptions. Since then, India and Pakistan have fought three and a half wars. So you had the 1948 war, then you had one war in 1965, then you had one war in 1971, when essentially the, such was the geographic division of, uh, of India and Pakistan that you had a West Pakistan which is what the current Pakistan is, but there was also East Pakistan, which is now Bangladesh, right? So that was the division which was carved out by the Britishers as they left India. But the East Pakistan always had a sense of grievance against this West Pakistan because uh, in a sense, you know, East Pakistan had a completely different outlook. It, For instance, it was a predominantly uh, ba- Bengali-speaking uh, Muslim population, which did not really identify with this uh, with this uh, new culture of Pakistan, which in a sense was trying to impose Urdu and those uh, kind of things. Plus, the geographical uh, distance between the two territories also meant that uh, eventually there was a, a liberation struggle, which was started by the by the Bangladeshis, and that is how uh, eventually in 1971. The Pakistan was divided into uh, the Pakistan and then uh, Bangladesh emerged as an independent state. And that, in a sense, was the fundamental division of Pakistan. So that was the, the uh, and India aided the, played a, a, a much uh, significant role in the creation of uh, Bangladesh. That was the war in 1971. And then after both the countries became nuclear powers in 1998, there was a limited war, border war between the two countries in 1999, when again some of the terrorists supported by the Pakistani army intruded and captured some of the Indian positions in North Kashmir and parts of Ladakh. And then that is how uh, India started bombarding those places. And then eventually there was a settlement. Currently, as you would see that there is a lot of economic instability in Pakistan. Uh, but the country does not really have the economic resources to sustain its own economy. It is neg- trying to negotiate a deal with the International Monetary Fund. So all those domestic dynamics essentially meant that even the even that there is no serious appetite within Pakistan uh, to engage India. So on one hand, you are going to see probably a very protracted economic collapse of Pakistan. And on the other hand, India just emerged as the fifth largest economy in the world, overtaking the former colonial master, Great Britain, right? The contrast could not be really uh, stark. This has been really, really great. You've really schooled me up on what's happening in your region. So I really appreciate it. And I'm sure our listeners will too. And one article that I can recommend to our listeners, which I read in preparation for this was the one that you wrote recently, Samir, on a spy master who now has Pakistan army's reins. So this is referring to former head of the ISI, Pakistan's intelligence agency, the Inter-Services Intelligence Agency, and he's now the chairman of the Joint Chief of Staff, basically. So that's one thing I would recommend for listeners. And Samir, you also had a book that came out a few years back as well. Yes, Yes, uh, the book was actually on, uh, it's called a Securing India in the Cyber Era, which looks at uh, the cyber security threat landscape and what kind of policy measures uh, India has taken. Wow, well, this has been great. I'm so glad we had this conversation and I, I really, really appreciate it. Thanks for listening to this episode of SpyCast. Please follow us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have feedback, you can reach us by email at spycast at spymuseum.org or on Twitter at INTL SpyCast. If you go to our page, thecyberwire.com slash podcast slash spycast, you can find links to further resources, detailed show notes, and full transcripts. I'm your host, Andrew Hammond, and my podcast content partner is Erin Dietrich. The rest of the team involved in the show is Mike Mincy, Memphis Vaughn III, Emily Coletta, Afua Anokwa, Elliot Peltzman, Trey Hester, and Jen Iben. 
This show is brought to you from the home of the world's preeminent collection of intelligence and espionage-related artefacts, the International Spy Museum. Hey all, Rick here. At N2K CyberWire, we're dedicated to continuously improving the quality of the news and commentary on our network. That's why we're inviting you to participate in our 2024 audience survey. It only takes a few minutes and your feedback is invaluable. Plus, you'll have the chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card as a thank you for your time. Head on over to cyberwire.com survey. That's cyberwire.com survey to share your feedback now. <laughs> 